Good morning. morning. How are you? Good. The Gospel, Salvation and Sanctification, Part 1. I'll share with you uh, some of the thoughts I've had on this long since coming um, celebration in the Word of God. Before we dig into that, though, uh, we do have a leadership meeting after service today. Also, uh, just a reminder that we are on two local television stations, one in Seekonk, TV9, that runs daily at 7 a.m., and then uh, one in Dighton, TV9, Sundays at 11 a.m. So we're local on two different television stations. Um, So just a reminder uh, for those of you, maybe you know someone that's at home, they're home-ridden or something, they don't have very good internet skills and they just want to listen to the word turn them on to that and it's also is it, did it get posted monica to the board it's also posted on the board uh speaking of uh miss monica ledford uh we had our latest real talk uh interview with uh monica uh last week and it's posted on the website now so um make sure you watch it and uh send her emails and tell her how goofy she looked and <laughs> She was all nervous, but she did wonderfully, and it's, all, it's, it's our second one. Scott was the first. It's really nice to see in that forum individuals open up and just share relatable things, uh, and we've all had our walks, our unique walks in this life, and so uh, it's worth the, the 15, 20 minutes to listen to um, each one of these episodes, as I've been calling them. Uh, so please, that's on uh, the website as well. That's all I've got. We're good? Right, that's powerheads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for this day to worship you as members of your Son's body, as His bride, for it is truly a privilege and honor to be counted among your family. May our hearts be forever humbled by your presence, and may you remind us, as a good father always does, even discipline us as necessary, of all the goodness that is you. May we live and abide in your love, for that is the same love that hung on a cross, the same love that motivated you to send our Lord and Savior. We pray for those still struggling, and especially the lost. We pray that by your hand, this morning's message reveal its eternal part in salvation. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls, and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Gonna see if this works. Yep. Okay. Again, the gospel, salvation, and sanctification, part one. Now is the time to focus. Philippians three thirteen says, forgetting what lies behind. Matthew six thirty four. Do not be anxious about tomorrow, that cleaves out yesterday and tomorrow, leaving us doing this thing that truly does matter most, so let's take advantage of this grace we've been given here once again this morning. 
I was thinking before class, not that you would ever think this, not that I ever think it, it's just a question. Want to truly hurt someone? Give them a false hope, a false gospel, a counterfeit salvation. As I wrote about recently in a blog titled Pure Violence, this is the greatest injury we can impose on another. Go to 1 Corinthians 2.1. 1 Corinthians 2.1. That is the great violence in our world, folks. Counterfeit gospels, counterfeit salvation. 1 Corinthians 2.1. All the rest of it I like to think of as white noise, as static. At the end of the day, that all, that's all Satan wants. He hates Christ. He hates the Gospel, capital G. He loves little Gospels, little G's. 1 Corinthians 2.1 And when I came to you, brethren, Paul speaking, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That was Paul's attitude. That is certainly mine this morning. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. It's been interesting over the past few years because you see there's been a destination on the horizon for some time now. But we haven't been able to get to it right away because the seas have been choppy and others have been trying desperately to try to capsize our little boat. But God's been with us as He is faithful, even when we haven't been. So a shepherd sometimes feels like the captain of a ship, but it's often the case that we're only given the next waypoint on our charts. And from personal experience, I can tell you that such an arrangement is just fine given the tumultuousness of the journey. It's enough sometimes just to make it to the next waypoint in one piece without any losses. Case in point, we've spent years dispelling what can only be called out as false ideologies, doctrines, and their resultant fruit. But like peeling back an onion, with each new layer revealed, we've gotten one step closer to the core of that onion. Now, if you were to equate all the doctrines in the Bible to an onion, 
what might you say is the core of the onion? If you said the gospel, I'd have to agree with you. The saddest thing of all is that even though I'm comfortable with the gospel as a believer, I haven't had it all pinned down in Scripture. And I have wept over this, folks. Until recently and even now, there are still many things to learn. Our last couple of lessons spoke to the judicial side of salvation, namely justification by faith. Those are judicial terms, you see. Justification is a judicial term. God's judgment needed to be satisfied so that you could be justified by believing in Him so that He might impart faith to you, saving faith, not human faith, from a false gospel. These are judicious things, even the terminology echoes of a courtroom. So we had a couple of lessons on justification by faith, wonderful lessons which address the fact that we are born unrighteous and cannot be with God for eternity unless He imputes Christ's perfect righteousness to us. Go to Ephesians 2.8. Ephesians 2.8, both of those lessons really hinged on Ephesians 2.8 and 9. This is a well, this has, this scripture has a judicial bent to it. How is one saved? How is one justified? Justified simply means to be made righteous, as I taught. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So, with that said, and with justification by faith in our pockets, so to speak, fresh in our minds, I want to take this beautiful, grace-filled Sunday morning to teach you of the Gospel. I'm going to use the greatest source we've ever had on the subject, the central person of the Gospel, Jesus Christ Himself. Go to John 14.6. John 14.6. I am beyond uh, elated to have the privilege to teach you this thing this morning. But I just want to get it right. I want you to have it right in your own souls. I want you to see the Scripture and be convinced on your own so that you have convictions before others when you might be called to evangelize. John 14.6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father 
but through me. You get the sense that Jesus was saying, you've got to do it my way. You've got to do it my way if you want to have a relationship with my Father in heaven. But what? Through me, I stand right here as the gate to Him. And that means you have to do it His way to get to His Father. No other gospel, no other truth, no other so-called channel. Remember, the thief comes over the side to steal. He doesn't enter through the narrow gate. There are a lot of thieves out there, folks. But Jesus Christ said through me. If there was ever a man who walked this earth who was the rightful authority on the subject of the gospel, it had to be Jesus. Agreed? Amen. That's like asking a person who the best person to talk about themselves is. Obviously, it's them. And I was thinking about this topic. I'd be willing to bet that if I gave each of you a piece of paper and pencil and asked you to write down the gospel and then hand it to the ushers, I'd be, or I'd bet most of you would write a synopsis of 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Go to 1 Corinthians 15, 1. I bet most of you would write this. What is the gospel? Well, frankly, I think the, uh, the Spirit's a little fed up with what's been peddled or what's being peddled in this world, what's being called the good news, what's being peddled as the gospel but we'll get to that. 1 Corinthians 15.1 Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. There are some things that are going on. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas then to the twelve. But I would, I'd be willing to bet, as I said, that most of you who are well-trained would write some form of that passage down as the gospel. However, the challenge is this. In evangelism proper, is the gospel a simple presentation of facts followed by a mental assent to believe those facts? 
Or is there more to it than that? Does simply believing that Jesus is real and that He wants to give you blessings or them blessings save a person? Again, is the gospel a simple presentation of facts followed by a mental assent to believe those facts? Or is there more to it than that? Does simply believing that Jesus is real and that He wants to give them blessings save a person? There's your challenge. In other words, is salvation in a mental issue or a heart issue? Is salvation a mental issue or a heart issue? If Scripture, Jesus specifically, says it's a heart issue, then will the gospel peddled today in most churches please him? Is it consistent with the man who regularly turned pretenders and posers away? Is the gospel of today, the so-called gospel that most Christians, most churches, most evangelists even peddle, is it the real thing? I'd argue no way. That's what's been eating at me for years now. And it wasn't until I got to the core of the onion that I understood what he was getting at. I was unsettled. And he's about to unsettle many of you. So I'd argue no way. It's not even close even with many of the so-called educated gang. Today's gospel, yes, that's not a typo, that's a little g. The little g gospel today is a cheap, emotional gospel, not the one that Jesus Christ preached. It has been watered down to something that Jesus would have rejected as truth. Believing a wrong gospel doesn't result in salvation. I was just thinking of Acts when Paul had to deal with that demon-possessed person who was backing up the words of the gospel, but they were demon-possessed. So anybody can say the gospel. Anybody can memorize 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through But is that the gospel? Is that the good news? The facts? Is that the good news? Is it the facts or is it something more? So, today's gospel, the gospel today is a cheap, emotional gospel, not the one that Jesus Christ preached. It has been watered down to something that Jesus would have rejected as truth. Believing a wrong gospel doesn't result in salvation. And the saddest thing of all is that most believers that ought to know better can't be bothered with such things. Go to 2 Corinthians 11.4. Most believers, if they're even believers, can't seem to be bothered with such things. 
don't like this kind of a challenge, you see. Want the gospel to be something of just a mental assent. Repeat these words. Pray these words with me and you'll be saved. Say these things. Come be baptized. Do you really think that nobody's been baptized that that remained unsaved? Second Corinthians eleven four, for if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. This is not novel, folks, for people to become relaxed, to be lulled into accepting variants of the gospel. If you read the accounts of Jesus Christ, go home tonight, read as many of the red letters in your Bible as you can, you will see that Jesus Christ was unbending. Unbending. Unrelentful in His presentation of the gospel truth. He says, if, you're not, if, if you don't want me to be your Lord and Savior, walk away. Because I need your heart. This is a heart issue. You'll never follow me unless I have your heart. This never works. This is not enough. There are a lot of false professors in the early church and especially in today's church. And shame on we believers for not setting the record straight. Just because someone says they are presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't mean that it's real. Satan has concocted innumerable false gospels. You see, the word, the very word gospel, is just a word, isn't it? How about Jesus? Or Christ? Or Messiah? Or any of these words that are somehow included even in today's watered-down gospel. Aren't these simply words, strictly speaking? Just so you know, and most of you know, the Bible was not written in English. So Jesus is actually not the name in the original Bible. But who's going to run around saying Yeshua? Any of you? No. So it can't be just the words. Words of vehicles. I've taught you this in the past. Most people, even so-called evangelists and pastors, will have what has proverbially, proverbially been called the altar call. where folks walk up front and proclaim their belief, sometimes in public, obviously. And everyone gets all emotional. Maybe it's after some music or something as well. And then they make the claim on their website or in their literature that hundreds of thousands, or thousands maybe even, were saved that day. 
And then six months later, these same people are nowhere to be found. Something's wrong, folks. Something's seriously wrong with today's so-called gospel. God sees the heart. He wants a converted heart, a contrite, subdued servant's heart. He wants a humble heart, a sinner's heart, not a self-righteous one. He wants a heart that's fertile soil so that he can give a person salvation that's his will. It's always been his will. Go to 1 John 2.17. 1 John 2.17. God sees the heart. First John 2.17. It's always been His will, folks. First John 2.17, The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. What is the will of God? Up here on the board, 1 Timothy 2.4 stated simply, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's a reference to salvation and sanctification afterwards. That's His fundamental will for His children. He desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But Jesus Christ said, nobody comes to the Father but through Me. So what about salvation? What about the good news? Well, let's plug on. Verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would not have remained with us, or they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they, are, they all are not of us. Again, that's to remind us bluntly that not all people that say they are saved are actually saved. There are a lot of folks out there, I'm convinced of it, that will hear the same words the Pharisees heard from Jesus Christ Himself. Go to Matthew 7.21. Matthew 7.21. So the Spirit is pricking your souls right now, you see. He's purposely making you uncomfortable I hope, so that you see what I see all around us and how different today's gospel is from Jesus' own gospel. 
Matthew 7.21 Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This was the self-righteous crowd. Jesus came to save sinners with sinners' hearts. Jesus doesn't know the self-righteous crowd for salvation. So he says, I never knew you. Depart from me. This is very upsetting to me. I'm going to hold back my own emotional response this morning best I can. I prayed before I started class even that he give me the strength not to weep. This is very upsetting to me that people, it seems in increasing doses, hear false gospels and think they're saved. They hear words and they make a mental assent and they think that that's the end of it. But they cling to their self-righteousness and their old lives. It's funny, there's increasing talk about the rapture and such, and how much fun it's going to be, etc. And part of me, of course, joins right in the celebration, of course. But part of me refuses to rejoice as my heart breaks awfully hard each and every time I think of the multitudes that aren't saved. How can I not think about the unsaved when even God doesn't have that attitude towards them? Spanking a child out of a sense of duty and justice doesn't mean the act of spanking is any less painful to the parent. Go to 2 Peter 3, 7. That's God's heart, you see. He doesn't want any to perish. He wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of Him. That's God's heart. That ought to be our heart. Knowledge of Him. Listen, not knowledge of words. Not knowledge of facts. Knowledge of Him. Supernatural knowledge of Him. These are heart issues, folks. 2 Peter 3.7 But by His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that the Lord 
one day is to the, with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to what repentance God's heart. The Lord God desires all to come to repentance. Did you see any mention of repentance in 1 Corinthians 15? No, you did not. You did not. And that's fine. Those were the facts about Christ Himself. But even an unbeliever, even the demons know the facts of Jesus Christ. So, to present the gospel as, do you accept this as truth? And you read them the facts, and they say yes, that does not mean that they're saved. The Lord God desires all to come to repentance. Up here in the board, Ezekiel 33.11, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. What precedes life then? To turn from your way as a wicked person, as a sinner, that you might gain life. The Lord God desires all to come to what? Repentance. I think it's fair to say that God's heart aches for those who are lost. Now, as a disclaimer, would it be fair of God that the gospel be exclusive to those of its full knowledge? Would that be fair? I think not. And when I say quote, full knowledge, I mean, to me, as I've taught, the good news, the gospel, here it is. Here it is. In print. But everything in there, as we call it, the canon, is part of the good news as far as I'm concerned. So, God's not unjust to say unless you have every jot and tittle memorized that you're not able to understand my salvation. That's not truth either. That's a different gospel as well. So since gospel literally means good news, to me the good news is captured throughout the entire canon. Even the most studious Bible student can't know it all, frankly. However, with that said, the beautiful gospel 
God has made his gospel simple enough for a child to believe, yet substantial enough to invigorate the most spiritually mature for all their days. Listen, I've been at this for a long time now. Some of you a lot longer than me. And the most invigorating truth in the Bible, if you have it, if you possess it, is the gospel. Romans 1.16, from faith to faith. From faith is relevant to the gospel. It's what we're tethered to. Our entire hope, as I've taught recently, depends on this gospel truth. How do you ever get tired of that? How do you ever become stale in your relationship with Jesus Christ? God has made His gospel simple enough for a child to believe, yet substantial enough to invigorate the most spiritually mature for all their days. Now, I want to begin sinking our teeth into this a little bit. Simple. Simple does not mean without cost, folks. Simple does not mean without cost. Jesus gave up his life for you to be saved. A person needs to give up their life for him. What do you think repentance means? It means to turn away from the old life to Him. It means to reject the sinful life for grace. It means your heart is looking for a relationship, not a mental ascent. You're not hedging a bet. You mean if I say these words in prayer even? I go through these motions that I won't have to go to hell, that's a false gospel. Because God sees the heart. And I could teach a parrot, if I worked hard enough, to regurgitate 1 Corinthians 15. So Jesus gave up his life for you to be saved. A person needs to give up their life for Him. If they are unwilling and unrepentant, they have a problem. So says Jesus. Go to Matthew 11.25. Matthew 11.25. So it's important for you to realize that this is not Pastor Ed. I am far to the side. I am but merely a mouthpiece. Matthew 11.25 I personally don't want to partake in a garbage gospel, in a watered-down, emotional, false gospel. Matthew 11.25 At that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, 
nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Remember, it's Jesus' gospel, not ours. We don't have the right to misrepresent His will. And as I said earlier, if you don't trust me on this, then go home this evening and read all the red letters and say the book of Matthew and see what you see with the faith of a child and throw out all your doctrinal postures, things that you might have learned in the past. Just throw them all out for that moment and just read the words. And you tell me I'm not supposed to be standing here this morning defending him, defending his honor, defending his right as Lord and Savior. Matthew 20, 11, 28, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I want to quote a gentleman that I've been doing an awful lot of reading with, Pastor John MacArthur, who I believe has all of this nailed. And he gets a lot of grief from some of the present-day mashers, as we'll call them, of the gospel. Ones who have watered it down. Ones who have made it and turned it into some kind of a mental ascent thing. And these are the quote-unquote intelligent and the wise. Sound familiar? Who did he reveal the gospel to? The infants. The intelligent and the wise. He says, get away from me, I never knew you. Be very, very careful of a false gospel, folks. Very careful. He says, Jesus' offer of rest for the weary is a call to conversion. It is a masterpiece of redemptive truth. Synopsis of the gospel according to Jesus. These are heart issues, folks. Facts don't mean anything unless you have a heart that's ready to receive them as truth. With that said, let's dissect this passage a bit and see what the gospel according to Jesus really is. What I believe most of you will find is that it's a heart issue. It's simple, but it also includes aspects that some of you haven't considered in the past. It certainly has nothing to do with mental assent only. Oh, sure, that's convenient, isn't it? Really convenient when you don't want to be bothered. Well, the game starts in five. Uncle Jimmy's over here who I know is not saved. Uncle Jimmy, read this coin. Do you believe that? Oh, yeah. Good, you're not going to hell. Let's watch the game. The gospel certainly has nothing to do with mental assent only. Matthew eleven twenty five. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Jesus lays out some basic ground rules. First, God, up here on the board, salvation. 
God is the one who saves, not the evangelist. God is the one who saves, not the evangelists. Who's the only one able to give faith? Who's the only one to judiciously declare you righteous in his eyes? God is. So guess what? God's the one who saves. Our job as evangelists is to present the gospel accurately. And that's what this morning's about and however long he wants us to study this out. Second, humility. Humility is the key to salvation. The most learned Jewish Bible scholars of the time, you know, the wise and intelligent in Scripture, were spiritually blind because they used natural thinking to interpret spiritual reality. That's the problem with unbelievers. That's the problem with the antagonists to the gospel today. They say, how could that be? How could this be? How could that be? Well, that's what the natural mind thinks like. How could that be? Some of them believe that there's a God who created the universe, but then they say, how could that be with Jesus? Seriously? Seriously? The scripture says, with God all things are possible. So maybe, just maybe, we should stop trying to be critical thinkers, natural thinkers, especially when it comes to the gospel. Humility is the key to salvation. It's also the key to the what? The spiritual life. The most learned Jewish Bible scholars of the time, the wise and intelligent, were spiritually blind because they used natural thinking to interpret spiritual reality. Up here on the board, Matthew 18.3 says, And said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Signed, Jesus. So the gospel is simple, though it's not without cost. But it is truly simple. The intellectuals, the ones who propose that they have the greater truth, the ones who separate themselves in their own self-righteousness. Jesus Christ himself says, get away from me, I never knew you. I'm not interested in that heart. I'm saving sinners, not the righteous. I came down here to save sinners. And that implies that you have a sinner's heart, that you realize you need a Savior. You need to turn away from sin. The self-righteousness became sin. It became a source of greater sin. Pride, arrogance. Read Proverbs 16, 7, I believe it is. The first one mentioned, haughty eyes, the arrogance, the flesh. They were so lofty. They missed the heart issue. They had all the intellectualism nailed down and they held people to it. Even made up their own laws after misinterpreting Scripture with their so-called intellect. And you know what? Jesus won't have it. He didn't then, and he doesn't have it now. So how dare we misrepresent him and his gospel by saying it's anything less than what it is? These are heart issues. 
Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I was thinking, children aren't natural thinkers like educated adults are. My greatest fear with my boys is that they grow up, they go through school, if they choose to go to college, they go to college, and college teaches them to be what? Critical thinkers. And it's a very dangerous Slippery slope. Children aren't natural thinkers like educated adults are. They are much more faith thinkers. Again, verse 11:25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. This way. To reveal it to the infants. Not the proud. Not the wise in their own estimation. So up here on the board, well-pleasing in your sight is a very telling statement. It refers to his children's dependence on him versus the independent critical thinkers of Jesus' day. He didn't want righteous. He wanted sinners. Who did he hang around with? Sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. These were all the dregs of society. And what did the so-called wise say? Who's he hanging around with the sinners? Breaking bread with the sinners. Hmm. Well-pleasing in your sight refers to his children's dependence on him. That's a hard issue, folks. Matthew eleven twenty-seven: All things have been handed over to me by my Father. When he says, my Father, everyone present at that time would have realized he was saying that he was equal with God. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Nobody gets to the Father but through me. So you can say all you want, you crazy so-called Christians of 2015, but nobody's getting to Him except through me. And my gospel hasn't changed from 2,000 years ago when I presented it proper in my incarnation. Why would it? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and what? Forever. We wouldn't expect anything less unless we call him a liar. So the second facet of Jesus' synopsis, first being humility, of his own gospel is this, relative to revelation. The Son of God reveals the gospel to God's children through himself. It is the only way that leads to conversion. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. And then here comes the call. Here comes the call, folks. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The context here, remember, is a group of individuals that had been pressed down, trying to measure up through human strength. And some of you can relate. We call that religion. 
do all this and maybe you'll get to heaven. Be righteous. Enough. Who says it's enough? Who knows? Just keep putting money in the basket so that enough is enough to keep this ridiculous church and its false gospel going. And I speak not of our own, of course. So the context is that there were those weighed down trying to dig their way out of sin. That's religion. Jesus knew this, which is why He used the yoke analogy in His teaching. Something Peter borrowed later on, up here on the board in Acts 15.10. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? That's what the wise and intelligent did to the followers of that religion. They put a yoke that nobody could bear. They thought they could, but they were idiots. And they basically enslaved those that were unsuspecting idiots along the way. Why would you do that, says Peter? This is the antithesis of, and I will give you rest. Jesus Christ has come to me, all you weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The false gospel says, come to us, and we'll put a yoke on you that you'll never hold up. You'll be like a, 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 an oxen with his face in the dirt, trying to plow a field. The wonderful thing about the patience of God, Allah, 2 Peter 3, 9, is that it gives us time to realize how weak and pathetic we are when we try to do it ourselves. Recall the law as a whole was meant to, what? Lead us to Christ. At the end of it, that's what it was meant to do. You're never going to measure up to my perfect law. It's too heavy for you. I have to take that for you. I can bear it. It's mine. You can't. The only one that ever did it was Jesus Christ. It was too heavy to bear up except for Jesus. That's what the law taught us. Therefore, we have to look to a Savior. Unless you think you can what? Keep the law. Like the wise and the intelligent. Hence, what you're really seeing Jesus suggest when He says, Come to me is this. Repentance, folks. And we are still on the gospel proper, so we have humility as the key. We have repentance now. A weary and heavy-laden person is ripe soil for repentance. They are ready to turn away from the futility of the sin life towards God's grace. Again, repentance. A weary and heavy-laden person is ripe soil for repentance They are ready to turn away from the futility of the sin life and towards God's grace. This invitation, come to me, also speaks to the heart for Christ. As our third point, a heart for Christ is evidenced when a person repents and turns to Christ as Lord and Savior. He says, come to me. 
Well, you can't come to him if you're still clinging on to the old life. You have to turn your back on it. He says, come to me. Many times in Scripture, what does he say? Follow me. You can't follow him if you're still dragging behind you the old life, clinging to those things. So a heart for Christ. A heart for Christ is evidenced when a person repents and turns to Christ as Lord and Savior. This implies what? It implies that this turning around, repentance from sin to Christ, is an integral part of the gospel. These are the heart issues, folks. We're no longer talking about mental assent. We're talking about soil that's ready to receive the gospel truth. And that soil may take years. God may need to take a time with you. You may be one stub and you know what. And he has to till the soil and till the soil and give you the gospel over 20 years. And finally you figure out that that life you've been living for isn't going to work. It doesn't bring you happiness. It only brings you sweat and tears and disappointment. And there's no hope in it. Because you know what? The longer you live, the worse your body gets, the worse your mentality gets, the less you're able to hold up. See, when you're young and vigorous, right? Mm-hmm, I work out. I'm the man. I got a 140 IQ. I dominate this place. Look at me. I don't need Jesus. And then eventually you figure it out as life goes on. You're an idiot. That's the sinner's heart. That's when the soil is ripe. So it may take a while for the soil to become ripe. Nonetheless, it implies that this turning around, this repentance from sin to Christ, is an integral part of the gospel, which is something that makes some folks a little uneasy. Wait a minute, what about Uncle Jimmy? Jeez, I thought I had him before the football game the other day. Maybe you didn't. So these things, although they make some folks uneasy, they really shouldn't. If for no other reason, the Bible speaks to it often. Acts 2.38 up here on the board. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What does he say? Repent. Why is that so hard? It's only difficult for the person who's looking to hedge bets. They say, what do you mean? I have to repent? You have to, what? I'm not ready yet. No, you're not. And as Jesus would say, then walk away from me. He didn't bend to the unrepentant heart, you see. He didn't somehow go, well, okay. You should really do this, you know. It's like when the parent says, hey, listen, I'll give you two bucks to, you know, sweep the driveway and take the trash out and all this kind of thing, right? I don't do that for my kids, but some people do. I pay them nothing, ask them. (laughs) Sweep the yard, take out the trash. (laughs) Anyways, say you did that and they swept the yard but didn't take out the trash. Well, you know, you look so good out there and, and the neighbors were watching, here's your two bucks. Jesus doesn't work that way. Don't believe me? Read the red letters. He didn't bend. He didn't bend. He said, I came to save sinners, not the righteous. That's a heart issue. 
That's a person who realizes they need a Savior. They realize that they stink in their sin to the high heavens. So Peter said plainly, and Peter walked with Jesus, so I guess he would know too, right? It's been a couple of thousand years, so the gospel's been sort of watered down. And all these ridiculous churches are trying to fill seats. How do we fill seats? Lie to them. Get them emotional. Stir them up with 25 minutes of music and a 15-minute sermon on how wonderful they are, how wonderful and how many blessings Jesus has for them. Yay! Are you so jazzed up? Open up your wallet. Hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. Throw it in. Made another week. Church doesn't have to close. Do you think Jesus Christ would ever stand for that garbage? No way. He would rather stand there and say, you know what, if none of you believe what I'm saying to you right now, tough cookies. I'm going somewhere else. And that's what he did. So I'm not about to compromise my gospel. Are you kidding me? Jesus, you know, taught Peter, and Peter said, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. A true believer already understands what the Spirit's saying here in the Scriptures, that without repentance, you have a person who stakes a claim to be facing in both directions. That's a person who's playing games. That's a person who's hedging their bets. Well, if these Christian people are right, then all I have to do is say I believe and say this little prayer, and then that assures me that I don't go to hell. But if they're wrong, then I can still live the self-life and live a good life for me. That's not the gospel. That's an idiot trying to hedge his bets. And that's an insult to Jesus Christ, and he would have never stood for it. What did the rich man say to Jesus Christ? How do I get eternal life? How do I get eternal life? He says, you want to pass a test for me right now? Sell everything you've got and come follow me. Come to me, same idea. Come follow me. Nope. I'm not willing to give up the self-life for you. He walked away unsaved. So a true believer already understands what the Spirit's saying here in the Scriptures, that without repentance, you have a person who stakes a claim to be facing in both directions. That's not possible. As I wrote in a recent blog titled, My Lord not just my Savior. Jesus, who is God, remember, isn't looking at a person's profession. He's looking at their heart. Anyone can profess publicly. However, nobody's ever fooled God. If Uncle Jimmy, before the game, Suppose that you, you, the evangelist, can save him. He has a problem. You don't give him the gift of salvation. It's a heart issue. 
anyone can profess publicly, however, nobody's ever fooled God. We'll get back to this when we study out the parable of the soils. So hold that thought for now. The simple truth is that a desperate heart is looking for a Savior. Looking for a Savior. A self-righteous person isn't looking, are they? They're looking to hedge bets. Because that's what's made them successful in this world, after all. But Jesus Christ says, you shall never hedge a bet with me involved in it. The simple truth is that a desperate heart is looking for a Savior and is all too willing to repent from their sins. But the bigger issue is that it's a change of heart, not simply something added. It's a change of heart, not something simply added. Most people say, great, I'll take salvation. Mm, I'll take a little bit of this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'll take a little bit of that. And I'll just gather all into me. And Jesus Christ says, no. I want you to come to me like he said to the rich man. I want you to sell everything that you identify with. I want you to get rid of everything. And then you can come follow me. And we're talking about heart issues. A willingness. That's the gospel, folks. Not this watered down garbage that people are trying to fill seats with. Heart issues, folks. One has to turn their back on sin in order to fully commit to the Lord Jesus. Their whole heart must turn. That doesn't mean you're going to be in sinless perfection after you're saved. That may it never be. I can attest that, you know, let's face it. You know, I'm saying. Not too long ago. That doesn't mean that. It means you have, your heart doesn't depart. Your heart says, I'm a sinner. I'm going to sin till the day I die. I need a Savior. I know I'm going to commit sins tomorrow that I haven't thought of yet because I'm that good at it. I'm that good of an inventor. But these are heart issues. Jesus Christ sees the heart. He says, I don't want you to love that life anymore. I want you to realize what that is to me and the Father in heaven. We hate it. We hate it. And I want you to hate it. I want you to be repulsed by it. I want you to turn from it, even though you're going to go back to it in time. I want your heart to be ripe so that I can give you faith that saves. So one has to turn their back on sin in order to fully commit to the Lord Jesus. Their whole heart must turn This brings us to the next facet of the gospel synopsis according to Jesus Christ himself. And this one tends to give people fits as well. Submission. A person must be willing to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord, not just Savior. This is part of the invitation a person receives at salvation one must be willing to surrender their life to Jesus. Again, a person must be willing to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord, not just Savior. This is part of the invitation a person receives at salvation. 
one must be willing to surrender their life to Jesus. Hold your thumb there. Go to Acts 15.11. Acts 15.11. So submission is actually part of the gospel proper. Some call it lordship, whatever you'd like to call it. All I know is that the Bible is profoundly obvious, and if you read it with the faith of a child, you see the lordship of Christ. You see that the gospel includes submission to him. He doesn't say, hey, take that old yoke off and throw it in the woods and just run with me. He says, take that one off and do what? My yoke is easy. He says, put my yoke on. You know what that means? That means that you're now enslaved to him. And if you're not willing to put his yoke on, guess what? You don't really want a Lord and Savior, do you? And there goes the gospel, poof, up in smoke. You just wanted to add to what you already had. No, 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 no. I'll take the eternal life. I'll take all the goodies. What's in the goodie basket? Oh, definitely, definitely, definitely. I'll take all the goodies, but I'm going to keep this ridiculous yoke around my neck. The one that got me so far in this world, in the self-life. I don't want to have a Lord, I just want a Savior. But I don't want a Lord and Savior. I just want a Savior. Just tell me I won't go to hell, and then I'll go back to my old life. That's not a heart for Christ, folks. It's not a heart for Christ. That's a person who's playing games. And if these things, these gospel issues are heart issues, which they are, then shouldn't we investigate them? Shouldn't we proclaim them to the rooftops? Shouldn't we not apologize for things that Jesus Christ himself did not apologize for when he presented the gospel, when he was on the earth? Should we not? Should we do those things? No way. No way. And if we're doing it because... Personally, it makes us uncomfortable to tell somebody, guess what? You have to submit. You have to realize that you're a sinner and you, that you need a Lord and Savior. And it's all done by grace. You have to get rid of the self-life. So a person must be willing to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord, not just Savior. This is part of the invitation a person receives at salvation, the one must be willing to surrender their life to Jesus. Are you at Acts 15.11? Okay. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of what? The Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus. In the same way as they also are. Go to Acts 16.31. I'm just giving you a couple of examples, just so you know in Scripture, that in these quote, salvation verses, it's the Lord Jesus that's mentioned. They said, believe in the what? Lord Jesus. That implies you submit, that you take his yoke, that he's your Lord and Savior. You're not just mentally ascending to some coin or some memorized thing. Your soil must be ripe for the planting. It's got to be tilled. It's got to be ready. And if you don't think that you need a Lord, if you think that you want to maintain control, if you think that your life is under control and you want to keep it under control, therefore you want to keep that old yoke on you, then you don't want what He's giving you. You don't want Him. You want a gain. You want a cheap gospel. You want 
just the goodies, but you don't want him. Does that make sense? You don't want him. He's your Lord and Savior. And if you don't want all of him, if you just want little parts of him, what did he say? He said, get away from me then. Get away from me. I'm your Lord and Savior. So they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Again, up here on the board, relative to submission. A person must be willing to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord, not just Savior. This part, or this is part of the invitation a person receives at salvation. One must be willing to surrender their life to Jesus. Now back to where Jesus' yoke analogy implies submission. And the people of that day would have totally understood the implications. They lived in an agricultural society. They would have totally understood. As soon as you use the word yoke, that would imply you're now a slave of whoever owns that yoke, just like the farmer owns the ox, correct? That's what he was saying. He said, take this yoke. Go to Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Matthew eleven twenty nine. So to take a yoke means to submit. Paul goes on later on and says, listen, you're either a slave to righteousness or a slave to unrighteousness, but you're always a slave. So if you keep the old yoke, you're a slave to unrighteousness. If you take the new yoke, you're a slave to righteousness. But you don't get to sit in the middle and say, I'm going to take the, salv- the Savior part of the gospel. I'm going to take all the goodies, but I'm going to hold on to the old yoke. You don't get to do that. So says Jesus Christ himself. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Up here on the board. Jesus' yoke. The world imposes unbearable burdens on the flesh. However, consider the fact that Jesus was meek and lowly. His yoke is much easier to bear, especially since it is by grace that he empowers us to do so. He wasn't trying to live the self-life, in other words. He says, whatever challenges I'll give you, I'll meet you beforehand with grace. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. Don't believe me? Go to 2 Corinthians 12.9. Go to 2 Corinthians 12.9. Hold your thumb. That was funny. It was like, you know, when you hit the, when you hit the, the remote control and you're like, what the? You had to hit it twice. It's like, what happened? You know, I hit fast forward. I hit play. Nothing happened. Must have had it at the wrong angle. <laughs> that was funny. It was universal, too. Everybody's like, I'm like, these guys are enraptured. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Again, the point on the board, the world imposes unbearable burdens on the flesh, However, consider the fact that Jesus was meek and lowly. And that's not an insult, by the way. His yoke is much easier to bear, especially since it is by grace that he empowers us to do so. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Go to 1 Timothy 1.12. 1 Timothy 1.12.
1 Timothy 1.12. I thank Christ Jesus, our what? Our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. That's what you do with, when you don a yoke. He puts you in service. How many times have we learned when you believe you become a full, in full-time service, you're a soldier for Christ? Everybody just likes to wash over those things. But this is part of the hard issue of the gospel. Otherwise, it's vapid. It's void of any substance. If it's just mental assent, it's void of any substance. I mean, I could get a, a devout uh, Muslim right now to repeat 1 Corinthians 15 with me, and he would say, I actually believe that Jesus was a man. A teacher, maybe a rabbi. It's possible. I don't know what they exactly believe. It's possibly died and whatever. But I don't believe he's my savior. I don't believe that he's my Lord. I don't believe that he was God. You see? These kinds of a thing. That's very different, folks. I think Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considers me faithful, putting me into service. And that is a reference to Bearing his yoke. Okay, go back to Matthew eleven twenty nine. Matthew eleven twenty nine. <clears throat> Some of you are claiming that you're bearing a burden right now because your bladders are full. <laughs> and I'm going long. Anybody gonna like collapse? Nobody would raise a hand at this point anyways. Right? Everybody's like, I knew I shouldn't have gone to Dunkin' Donuts. Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All of that statement from the Lord Jesus Christ is part of one concept, folks. He's attaching a person's heart to his own. He says, I'm your Lord. If you want me as Lord and Savior, then reject all that and take my yoke. You will be my slave, my doulos. You will be my slave. But that's okay because I'm a perfect master. And because I'm a perfect master, I won't abuse you. I will take care of you. I won't weigh you down with things I haven't provided grace for in the first place. I will meet every obstacle you have with grace. I mean, how much of the, old, how much of the New Testament is is, uh, you know, just read uh, James uh, 1, right? How much of the New Testament is dedicated to perseverance? But unlike the poor master who says, go out and dig a six-foot ditch with a spoon, he says, I'll give you everything you need to do the job right. This is all part of the same thing, folks. This is the heart issue of the gospel. No pretending. You know why? Because he didn't pretend. 11.29 Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Up here on the board, again, relative to Jesus' yoke, to exchange the world's yoke for Christ's (coughs) means a joyous submission It's not, uh, oh man, from one yoke to the next, it's not that. And a 
person who's right will understand this. And God will make it evident to them. To exchange the world's yoke for Christ means a joyous submission. Believers receive rest for their souls. Now, it's important at this point to realize the context of Jesus' ministry at this point in time in Matthew 11. Up until that point in time, Jesus would present the gospel directly for all to hear, without apology, without watering it down. This is the gospel. I'm Lord, I'm Savior, I'm your Messiah, you dummies, but you're missing the whole thing because you're too academic and missed the whole point. But he did do this thing, for the Jews especially. He presented the gospel straight up. So we might summarize the first part of Jesus' ministry as presenting the gospel directly and plainly. And as we all agreed at the outset of this morning, if anyone had the gospel nailed, it would be Jesus himself. Well, he wasn't interested, folks, in a pitiful gospel, little g. In fact, if you read his accounts in the Bible, he was often seen turning people away. Turning people away. Why? They weren't ready yet. They didn't even believe they were sinners. They thought they were self-righteous. I wonder how many of those people would be, quote, caught in the catch-all Gospels of today. In other words, Jesus would go, no. And now all the churches around are like, ah, oh, we'll totally take you. We'll just give you a false gospel until you're saved. I wonder how often that would happen. That Jesus would go, and the churches would go, we'll tell you you're saved. I wonder how often that would happen with today's little G gospels. So consider the following five points again as part of your own gospel awareness. A heart must be ready to receive the whole truth of Jesus Christ, not just mere words you read off the back of an evangelist's coin. Humility. Humility is the key to salvation. The most learned Jewish Bible scholars of the time, the wise and intelligent, were spiritually blind because they used natural thinking to interpret spiritual reality. Revelation, the Son of God reveals the gospel to God's children through himself. It's the only way that leads to conversion. Repentance, a weary and heavy-laden person, is ripe soil for repentance. They are ready to turn away from the futility of the sin life and towards God's grace. A heart for Christ is evidenced when a person repents and turns to Christ as Lord and Savior. Come to me, he said. And then, of course, submission. A person must be willing to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord, not just Savior. This is part of the invitation a person receives at salvation. One must be willing to surrender their life to Jesus. So, as we're running out of time, Jesus' synopsis of the gospel is simple then, isn't it? It isn't interested in mental assent or a cheapened gospel. He wants to be both Lord 
and Savior. He wouldn't accept those in his own time that simply wanted the blessing of eternal life. He demanded, as should we, that they submit their lives to him as Lord. These are heart issues, folks, not academic ones. I guess we'll end here. We're not done, obviously. The beautiful gospel. God has made his gospel simple enough for a child to believe, yet substantial enough to invigorate the most spiritually mature for all their days. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's simple, therefore it's not exclusive. It's available to infants. It's available to sinners who realize they need a Savior and are willing and ripe and ready to respond to the gospel truth, to repent of the old life and say, heck yeah, I I want to whip this old yoke off. I want to have your yoke. You're my Lord and Savior. You're my Lord and Savior. Amen? Let's bow our heads. I'd like to dedicate the closing moments of today's message to those who are without Christ and therefore are without hope. John 3.16 states, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you are indeed without Christ at this moment, know this, have faith in this and embrace this as solemn truth. Acts 16.31, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household you believe that you need a Savior and you repent of your sinfulness, then accept the free invitation now that is Christ Jesus, our Lord Himself, and be saved. If you have just believed for the very first time, I'd like to welcome you to the family of God. Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for making this day a reality, for giving us the time and space as you wait patiently for all those to gather unto you, and for making us ever aware of our duties to our calling while here on earth. What a privilege it is to know you and to love you, for we love because you first loved us. You have given us this love by grace so that we might be lights to the world, so that others may see your heart and our changed hearts, so that your will, your precious unerring will, be evidenced through us, through Christ. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name that we pray. By the power of the Spirit, amen. Thank you.